Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're talking to an old friend, Ralph Moore, about the rise and fall of movements. Well, Ralph, I think we've known each other for maybe 15 years, 20 years. Yeah, it's been a while. I I think before I'd written any books, um, I'd heard about you through a, a mutual contact and uh, came across with some Australians and New Zealanders, uh, one New Zealander, just to see what God was doing there through you and the movement, especially in in terms of how you were raising up uh, and training and releasing church planters. Yeah, and and we just kind of became friends and I began to hear from everybody in Australia that you were the go-to guy when it came to understanding movements and and just the, the whole fact of church planting and how that that works. And uh, so I've been intrigued. I've been reading your stuff and uh, very interested in, in what Steve thinks about pretty much everything. And, um, you know, over the years, just the, the, you know, in America, we've been into megachurch for so long. And uh, to know that there are some people out there in different parts of the world that believe in the things we were trying to do, you've been a super encouragement to me. And, and I just want to say thank you for that. As, oh, as we talk here today, um, the, the book, the, the Rise and Fall of Movements, um, that, that seems to be uh, an apex in your life. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you got into the book and, and why you wrote it? Hmm. Well, I, I was a young church planter. Um, I, I wish I'd had some of your one of your early books at that stage, but I, I just had a, a couple of Peter Wagner tapes and a couple of Rick Warren tapes, and that was my training to plant a church. <laughs> and uh, it went well. We had a good church behind us. and um, But in that second year, we, we walked into a church fight. And um, God used that to really sort of shake me to the core and to sort of make clear, Steve, it's, it's not just about one church plant, but on his heart were multiplying churches across the nation. And that was, uh, goodness, that was 30 years ago, uh, Ralph. And uh, so God's had my attention about movements ever since. And the book itself was sort of a companion to the first book I wrote, which was about the characteristics of dynamic movements. Yes. Rise and fall traces, yeah, the light, the movement life cycle, how they change over time. And so it's sort of been brewing away for about 30 years. That's good. You know, what's interesting to me, I'm kind of in the sunset years, you know, I'm, I'm in my 70s now and uh, no longer actually actively pastoring a church. I'm, I'm training guys and doing some of that. But uh, I actually today I'm back in Hawaii. I moved to California. And yesterday I, I ran into a guy who just started three churches in the Philippines from Hawaii. And uh, I was the day before with some people that that man had impacted in Africa. Uh, this is a just ordinary guy, a layman. And he's um, 
runs a little business and he was a serial church planter here as a freelance pastor. And I, I see these things happening and I, and I realize as, as I'm kind of fading from the scene, uh, the, the movement is, is perhaps moving toward its zenith. Yeah. Have, have you seen things like that in your studies? I, I mean, we're, there's a key leader who maybe gets things started, but then the thing takes on a life of its own and, you know, kind of enlighten us to that stuff. Well, and, and one of the key roles of a founder, you know, initially it's their personality, their call, their drive. They, they embody the movement. Um, and that, that, I imagine, is a scary thing. But the great founders, um, especially throughout the phase that I call growth, where it's really taking off, rather than try and hold everything to themselves and control the thing, they're actually growing leaders, they're growing people, they're clarifying this is who we are, this is how how God has shaped us. And so by the end of that growth phase, if the movement's going to take off, um, the founder's no longer in charge. You know, they... They're celebrated, they're, you know, whether they're alive or not, you know, um, their, their example and, and story is valued. But the great founders learn um, to set everybody free uh, yeah. around that core strategy and that core heart for making disciples and, and planting churches. So, it's, it's good you've moved to the mainland and you're not pastoring a church. You're still playing a role, but you're not, you're not controlling anymore. Not that you ever did, but you're not in charge. You know, one of the things that blessed us along the way was um, we, we weren't sure it was a blessing when it first happened. We were part of a denomination, and if we would plant a church, then they would assume authority over that church. And... Um, uh, you know, we were hippies in those days. We kind of resented all that. But we began to realize that there was a strength that we couldn't really control anything. And all we could do was to inspire and, and help people have, uh, you know, imagine what could possibly happen. And uh, then they took over from there. And, you know, most of the churches we started weren't denominational, but hmm. those that were, it kind of just set a pattern. So, you you see that kind of thing? I mean, not necessarily like the form it took for us, but that the leaders who lead from inspiration and example a little bit more than those who lead from control? Yes. I mean, in the early stages, it's important for the key founder, in a sense, to be in control because we don't know what this is. It's, it's, it's like a baby's born. We're not just going to throw it out and, and let it fend for itself. So there's, there is a high level of, um, I don't know if control's the right thing, but you're in charge and yeah. you're still trying to work out what is this that God is doing. You're exploring different methodologies. You're wrestling with, you know, questions of the identity of, of the movement. But definitely there's got to come a time, and I, I'm thinking of a movement catalyst um, I'm aware of at the moment, and, you know, you turn up to an event and over two days he'll, he'll get up maybe once. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time he's up the back cheering, 
his guys that he's developing. Um, and that's what the great founders do. They do model it. They do protect the call and the movement in the early stages. But it's never going to take off uh, if, it, if it revolves around them. When, when they stay in control, we call that the founder trap. And, yes. Uh, but the, the Lord has a, a great instrument um, to release that control. Um, it's called death. And so most founders eventually die. And sometimes yes. the movement takes off far beyond them in that generation after their death. So they've still done a good job, but the Lord's had to sort of release their grasp of the thing through the natural process of death. Yeah. I'm glad that that hasn't been the case for you, Ralph. <laughs> well, so far. You know, I, I was at a, a, an event a few years ago, and I was in a panel, and one of the guys got up and said, uh, I, I actually think he, he got mad at something I said. I, I was endorsing uh, a, a woman pastor, and he didn't believe in women in ministry. And um, I, I actually wasn't even talking about that. I was just talking about this lady did these great things. And, you know, I'd never even thought about whether she was a lady or what. But he, he, he kind of turned on me and he goes, you know, you're not this laid back person that is persona that you put forward. And I know you couldn't have done what you do without having a high degree of control over all these people. And so I shot back and I said, you know what, in a way you're right, but you're terribly wrong. I, I'm the most high control guy you ever met because I make disciples and I teach them how to think. But then after that, I don't tell them what thoughts to think about. I just trust them. And we kind of let them go from there. And so in my situation, the only example or the only contact I've ever really been able to have, we weren't even able to run like annual meetings for that would involve everybody. A few people would come to things we did, but. It's mostly just by writing what I wrote today. I do a little blog. At some point, you have to believe in the Holy Spirit yes. uh, inside of people's hearts. And, but you give them the basic identity that comes out of Scripture and, and then let them move on from there. Yes. And I, I, a great passage for that is of, uh, Acts 20, Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. Yes. So how can he be so confident? in, you know, handing over authority and responsibility. Well, he'd already done that, but just affirming, you'll never see my face again. Yeah. And if you read his speech carefully, you know, he says, well, I've given you the word of the gospel, you know, so there's that living word. Um, I'm entrusting you to the Holy Spirit. So remember my example. <laughs> and... <laughs> But, and they're, they're the three things. And, and in one sense, you do have incredible control if God's word, the Holy Spirit, and the flawed but faithful example of key leaders. And even in that, um, it's because the leader serves the cause. It's not just somehow we've got a saint here. You know, we all have to <laughs> emulate this person. We'll have yeah. the Morites or something in the future. Yeah. <laughs> but it's more God has raised this person and other key founders around them around a cause that represents his mission in the world today. And, and, and ultimately, you know, we have Christ. And, yeah. and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
Right. And, and so there's a cause that you want people to grasp beyond loyalty to a leader or an organization. It's, it's God's mission of the gospel getting out to the ends of the earth and wherever the gospel goes, the fruit is disciples and reproducing churches. One, one of the things that's impressed me uh, the most is in Acts, the kind of I see it as an Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 11 axis. I, I look at the Jerusalem church as having kind of failed in many ways. I, I think uh, another topic we could discuss sometime would be, I, I think every church is called to multiply at least one church over its life cycle. But the Jerusalem church wasn't about to do that in Acts 8. It says all except the apostles fled. But everywhere they went, they actually went and did the Great Commission. And, of course, you get uh, Acts 11, where they start the church in Antioch. And, and then of course, Acts uh, 13, where Antioch sends people out. And um, and so I, I've always kind of looked at the apostles, the, the 11, as being courageously disobedient to the Great Commission. But uh, it, it, it really uh, it, it almost shattered me in, in one way when I first really discovered in Acts 14 where Paul was stoned and left for dead and and then the disciples gather around and it doesn't say they prayed but they must have and they sneak back into the city and then they go back to the to the villages where they had been for no more than a couple of months each and appointed elders from among their disciples and it says and they they entrusted them to the Holy they turned them over to the Holy Spirit in whom they had put their trust and I think how little contact they had. They didn't have email. They didn't have cell phones. They, they didn't have much, but they did have the word that they had imparted and, and the spirit. How do you see that playing out in movements around the world where, um, I mean, we're, we're looking is where the gospel is going the most quickly is in the places where they have the fewest resources. Um, how, how does that scripture look in light of what you see as you study? Hmm. Well, I think there's um, a definite dynamic at work that uh, in terms of, um, you know, Jesus calling us into that same relationship with the Father that he has or and, and with the Holy Spirit. So he has a very robust understanding of the work of the Spirit in our midst, reminding us and unpacking his living word. And so that's what we need to disciple people into. And there's still an important role. Often you see that apostolic function of a Peter or Paul. You're moving amongst the churches and the expanding network, and sometimes you are bringing correction and teaching and, and, and the like. But you're not lording it over people. And so Peter had uh, a few days with Cornelius before he left, and there's a house yeah. now meeting in Cornelius's home. Sorry, there's a church now meeting in his home. And now Peter most likely is going to circle back with a letter or someone visiting and, and so on. But it's it's not it's not day-to-day supervision, it's entrusting um leaders that God's raising up with authority and responsibility. And you can't have a movement without that dynamic. That's that's what Roland Allen reminded us of a hundred years ago, and we're still trying to catch up to him. 
You know, in the in the book, um, you talk about a progression, and if I remember it right, it starts with identity, and and then it begins to move to vision, and and then to strategy, and then kind of ultimately to methodology, and I, and then you know I would think in sometimes to ossification after that. But uh, talk to us a little bit about the the phases that you see in in the life of a movement. Hmm. Well. It begins with with birth, and the key thing to get right there is is identity. You know, the dependence on the word and obedience to the word, dependence on the Holy Spirit, and commitment to to the mission, the core missionary task of making disciples. And I find that in in the stories of Jesus' uh, baptism and wilderness testing, and then again we see him reaffirming those key things when the movement's being handed over to the disciples to pursue in that resurrection to ascension period, those same three characteristics. and But to move into growth, you need to start building. You've got to express that identity. And so we, we looked at, you know, well, what, what are the elements of Jesus' strategy, the recurring things, and the things like, rapidly mobilizing workers, contagious relationships, adaptive methods, pioneering leaders. And so he's, he's not just out there willy-nilly. He is carefully uh, putting in place the building blocks of a, of a missionary movement. And wherever that movement goes, you need adaptive methods. So they'll vary from place to place the way you present the gospel, the way you connect with people far from God. But there needs to be both identity and strategy undergirding that. Most of the time we're thinking, well, if we could just get the strategy right or the methods right, you know, this new tool or, hey, there's a a new uh, approach to doing this or that. You know what really wins over time is the identity piece. And Mm -hmm. you've can't renew a movement without returning to first things. And those that sort of bring renewal by saying we're going to be more contextual, we'll fit in better with the modern or the postmodern world or what, often by neglecting identity, the word, the spirit, the core missionary task, they actually become more of a movement in decline because they're accommodating themselves to the world around or they're just <clears throat> using techniques and, 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 and the like, they're scratching the surface rather than getting back to the heart of the thing. So we need to keep returning to who we are in Christ as we express that strategy that he had in fresh ways you know, for every generation and every context. You know, I'm a little bit um, cynical in some ways. I, I absolutely believe in what you're saying, but I get so frustrated. I, I was with a, talking with a denominational leader just three days ago, and he came to me wondering what he could glean about um, money. They've come into a lot of money, mm. and they, they, what they're saying is we would hope to turn from a denomination in decline into a movement once again. And... Um, my friend and I both warned him, be careful of money, because when you start throwing money at church plants, often you, you create dependencies, but you hobble them 
And and then he got down to the real business at hand. He had seen a church that it, uh, one congregation that started two hundred some uh, churches in some very difficult areas. I mean, like they got a micro church in a strip bar. And he's going now. How can we as a denomination imitate that? And it's like, oh my gosh, you jump right to methodology. Hmm. And I, 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 I just, you know, I tried to be gentle and gracious, and he just turned me off. So I, I'm kind of, like I said, a little bit cynical when I see the, these method, these approaches to rejuvenation. I, I've seen one group in America that's really make, turned the corner. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The Wesleyan Church are doing some incredibly mm-hmm. good things. But what about local churches? Uh, you know, I, I think in the United States, the, uh, the uh, mean church size is about uh, 75 people. Yeah. In Japan, it's half that. Uh, we're beginning to see some stirrings of vision in some of the Japanese churches that because we're using this concept we call micro church where a guy mm-hmm. keeps his career and then sees himself as a as a career guy who's a freelance pastor. So he's more Aquila in Corinth making tents than he is Paul making tents. Mm-hmm. So we'd see Paul as a bivocational apostle and Aquila as a freelance ministry guy who's a tent maker by career. So we're seeing open doors with smaller churches being able to do stuff. What would you say is, are the implications of what you've written in the book to the, to the local church that's gone, you know, we struggle a little bit financially. We're, you know, we're just keeping our head above water, but we believe that we're called to do this. But what kind of things would you tell those people? Well, the, the encouraging thing is that, you know, most of the people in the world will be reached by a small local church somewhere between that 25 to 75 mark. And so we don't know if you can plant a church until you've connected with a community, shared the gospel, made some disciples gathered them into discipleship communities that we call, that the scriptures call church. And so why don't you just start doing that, you know, in your own neighborhood or somewhere in town that you're willing to commit to? And um, so right around the U.S. and in other places in the West now, there are churches that are saying, um, we're not going to deconstruct ourselves. This is the sort of church we are. And some of them are very big. Some of them are much smaller. But we want to train our people in how to have gospel conversations and how to make a disciple. Um, and some of those new disciples will come back here to the service and some of them will, will plant new groups and churches in the community. Now, you fast forward a couple of years and you have a couple who are demonstrating an ability to reach people, make disciples, form simple churches in the community. Will you have a cross-cultural missionary or a church planter on your hands now? But it's zero dollar and low risk. What happens if they can't reach their community? Well, they'll be a bit discouraged, you know. We'll give them some training and coaching, but they haven't quit their job. You know, they haven't moved halfway around the world. Um but what happens if we begin to see, you know, we've got a two or three teams out in the community, some larger churches are doing that, and they're seeing fruit. 
Well, maybe we have some church planters, uh, some cross-cultural missionaries on our hands, and some of those people now are going to the ends of the earth, places, hard and dangerous places, because Mm -hmm. now their church has seen a couple of years of track record. And my example in the book is um, Charles Simeon. He discovered your secret, Ralph, is you you can be the laziest pastor out um, and, and fuel movements. Because his church, unlike yours, was struggling. Uh, it was in Cambridge. And so he just decided, well, you know, why don't I try and train and mentor some leaders here at Cambridge University? I think I could do about 20 a year. Well, after 54 years, Charles Simeon had a 1,000 leaders he's raised up and released into uh, ministry throughout the UK and to the ends of the earth. So he single-handedly, without any permission and a very low budget, um, turned around the evangelical movement in the Anglican Church and, you know, created a mission society called Church Mission Society. Just this one guy with a church that most people didn't like him, you know. Um, And so I'd say to that struggling church, you can't do everything, but you can do something. Um, And it would be better if it just was zero-dollar budget. Well, I believe in that 100%. I've always, um, we tried to do two things in our church. We, we tried to have everybody in the church involved in a discipleship. We call it a disciple-making continuum. And so we would structure any midweek meeting around just three questions. What did the Holy Spirit say to you while the pastor was talking? Which might not be the pastor's sermon either. Mm. Uh, what are you going to do about it and how can we help? People start to put their life on the line, but the leader now is discipling those people. And then we're discipling those leaders. And, and we turned out a lot of pastors that way. And, and then, But I would off to the side just have a little group of three to seven people that I would meet with every Saturday morning. We'd read books. We'd just talk, whatever. And some of those guys have started churches. One guy here in Hawaii, we were in Oahu, and he came to me one Saturday. He's a bus mechanic. And he goes, can I, can I use my tithe money to travel to another island uh, once a month? And I go, no, no, your tithe belongs to the church. What are you going to do? Uh, I already knew what he was going to say. And he goes, well, I led a guy to the Lord, and 35 of his family have come become Christians, and uh, I, I need to go over there and coach the guy. And I go, so, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. So the church will fund one trip a month. It's about three times your tithe. We, but, you know, you can't buy that. You can't make that happen. Hmm. Uh, hmm. But when it happens, you can you can jump on it. We did financially. Sometimes you can't do that, but you can certainly stand up in church and make a hero out of the guy. And that's yes. the kind of stuff that needs to happen. Yes, and you're you're funding multiplication, not addition. Yes, and, yes. Um, so I I I would advise a donation with a lot of money. Just put it aside for a while. <laughs> that's good. Get back to the identity question, you know, uh, obedient to the living word, dependent on the Holy Spirit, committed to the core missionary task. They're they're the things that matter. And then as momentum builds, okay, there is a place for strategic funding, but don't fund addition, fund multiplication. Mm -hmm. 
So you're providing travel or training or whatever it might be for those workers who've already proven themselves as multipliers. In other words, they can train and release and equip others. If you're going to fund something, that's your highest priority. Because as it is, we, we tend to fund marketing and we tend to fund operational costs overhead. Mm. And the things that you're saying are, are, are they're the things that generate spontaneous movement forward. Yeah, uh, as, very- as a movement. Now, a local church, that's different. They, they, they can take responsibility for whatever yes. they're doing in their yes. community. But in terms of, no, we, we, we want to see movement, well, you've got to fund multiplication. Yeah. And it does come back to that identity piece. You know, I, when, it's a little odd because of just time and space. But when we started out, we were Jesus freaks. That was what the community around called us. But we couldn't escape the identity. Uh, you know, you can be called a Christian. That's become a political thing in America. Uh, when they called us a Jesus freak, we just we kind of reveled in it. And uh, but I've watched uh, us move from from that to big focus on mission. Uh, to then getting strategic about, you know, even uh, we do a lot in Japan. How are we going to strategize the geography of Japan? Mm-hmm. And and then in, we've, we're now fighting to resist methodology. That methodology doesn't become the leader. It, it's got to keep coming back to Jesus. Yes. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. So tell me um, what one thing that you would like to see your book accomplish uh, in in the in the world as we know it today, what would be the overriding joy of your heart if that if the book did that? I think it's when when people make that return. You know the 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 key moment for me. I, I've been wrestling with that movement life cycle for decades, but I I felt like. It's not just a matter of imposing some organizational model on the church, on the mission of God. And as much as that, there are lessons to be learned from organizational dynamics. But the aha moment really in that three-decade search came just a couple of years ago when I was uh, in the, the, uh, the Gospels realizing this story of Jesus' baptism and wilderness testing were the was this is the bridge between his life in Nazareth and him as coming king. So whatever God the Father is writing on his heart and whatever the enemy even is attacking has got to be core for us who want to see multiplying movements of disciples and churches. And that sort of changed everything for me, that whatever organisational issues are going on with the life cycle, the key to the rise and fall is actually who we are in Christ and especially reflected in our obedience to his word, our dependence on the spirit, our commitment to the core missionary task, you know, of, of bringing people to salvation and discipleship and then church formation. This is what the movement that Jesus birthed and still leads. So for me, it was actually in my research, my life was changed. You know, it's not like I didn't know that, but it's like it's become so central for me now. I feel like it's a real gift of God. And if others can have that same experience and this, 
and be with Christ in his baptism, in his wilderness testing, and then trust the Father to, to, in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit to launch that into the mission, I, I'd just be delighted. That's wonderful. That is really wonderful. I mean, that's it. Visit movements.net if you'd like to purchase a copy of The Rise and Fall of Movements, a roadmap for leaders. This has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.